Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today we are looking at the education system in Britain and we're asking whether private schools should be allowed to operate as registered charities. Some do and some don't. We have two wonderful guests, Julie Robinson, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Independent Schools Council, the ISC, and we also have Francis Green, Professor of Work and Education Economics at the IOE, that's the Institute of Education, at University College London's Faculty of Education and Society. So today we're asking whether private schools should be allowed to operate as registered charities. We have opposing views from our guests, and what follows is a very civilized and informed debate, which in a very heartening way actually concludes with uh, unexpected common ground, some agreement, and some fruitful suggestions for future policy and future policy exploration. So without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome, Julie and Francis, to the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. It's an absolute pleasure. I know we're all here in the UK, so we have not had to overcome any time differences, which is great. Today, the focus really is on education and the charitable status for schools, and this is within a UK context. Um, and I know we have a global audience, but so our UK audience will probably know more about what we're talking about today than our global audience. But I think the uh, the issues of relevance to anybody who cares about education globally. And so, what I think would be really useful to do, Julian Francis, is perhaps starting off by. Um, getting you to introduce yourselves a little bit and the work you're doing within education and perhaps set the tone about uh, charitable status and schools in the UK, what's what's going on. And by schools, I'm referring to private schools, um, not the state schools. Francis, perhaps you'd like to go first and, uh, and, and give us a little bit of a starting. Sure, I'm very happy to do that. Um... Where I'm coming from, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an academic, I'm Professor of Work and Education Economics at the Institute of Education at uh, UCL. A couple of years ago, uh, well, nearly three years ago, published a book with historian David Kiniston called Engines of Privilege, which more or less set out our position, uh, which was arguing that there was a, an extremely large resource divide between the private and state sectors of schooling in Britain. And this was a major source of inequality in our, in our country and a lack of social mobility. And um, uh, since then, and not just from, because of our book, but because of others and uh, 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 other public discourse about it, there's been quite a lot of debate around potential reforms of the uh, private school sector in Britain. And uh, one of those potential reforms uh, is the potential removal or alteration of the charitable status of, of private schools. So that's putting it in its context. There are other reforms that have been out there. I mean, there are some people who would just abolish all private schools. I'm not one of them, um, uh, but... Uh, it, and, and then they raise you know, all sorts of potential changes have been proposed over the years and, and in, uh, over the recent period as well. But so charitable status is the one I think which has most current common uh, current currency. Um, it's uh, in the manifesto of of the opposition party, the Labour Party in Britain, and uh, some kind of adjustment or removal of a charitable status could be a real reform in the event of uh, uh, a new government being elected in the next few years. So it's not just a, um, you know, not just a kind of hypothetical reform we're discussing today. Uh, and I think there's a lot of work to be done yet uh, to how it would work if it were to take place. But nonetheless, let's, let's think about it as something as something that's real and something that's, let's, now argue about whether it's a good idea and and so on and so forth. And without uh, getting into the uh, details right now, but just to set the tone, uh, Francis, that is a reform that you would be in favor of, in other words. Definitely in favor of. I firmly believe that it's a det it's detrimental to Britain and Britain's society 
not only making it unfair that some children have such a, an access to top positions and so on, uh, but also that it's it's just not good for our society that uh, that it's so uh, uh, restricted like that. Got you. Julie, uh, again, welcome onto the show. Thanks for making the time. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work you do, the Independent Schools Council, and again, uh, help us set the context as you see it for this specific issue. I'm a former teacher originally, and I was the head at two prep schools, two primary phase independent schools in Sussex over 11 years. So I have a 20-year career in teaching and, and being a head running an independent school. Um, by independent school, I just mean a, a fee-charging school in England. Um, then I worked for the Prep School Association, and now I run the Independent Schools Council, which is like a trade body. Um, so I represent the various associations who um, have, as their members, around 1,400 independent schools educating 600,000 pupils across the UK. So we represent their interests and we work in three main areas, um, policy and public affairs, um, media and communications, and research and data analysis. So we're representing the sector. It won't surprise your listeners to hear that we are not in favour of changes to charitable status for independent schools. In fact, what we're talking about there is schools which are run by a charitable foundation. And that's not all independent schools. Um, nationally, it's about half. Um, it's the majority of the schools in membership of our associations, but it's not all of them. So not all schools um, have the benefits of charitable status. Um, but education is recognised by law in the UK as a charitable purpose. So I think where Francis and I do agree is that we want all children to thrive um, and to have great educational opportunities. Um, but where we might diverge a little bit is that we feel, I feel that the, the way to achieve that is to ensure that the country can operate a healthy and diverse system, which includes the support for independent schools so that they can provide increased capacity and specialism across the system. And that includes bursary assistance, um, which is fee, fee remission, fee discounts, and partnership work with state schools. And we feel that any policy that increases taxes on independent schools will make that overall purpose harder. Um, so at the moment in England, we have a joint understanding with the government, which um, commits ISC and the D DfE, the Department for Education, to encourage partnership working between state schools and independent schools. Although in Scotland, there's been a recent decision to remove um, mandatory business rates relief. So that's 80% discount of business rates relief um, for independent schools up there. Okay. I mean, I, I would agree with the starting point of what you said, which is that it's legally uh, correct that education is, is, is a charitable activity in law. Um, but it's very hard to make that case morally and convince me or ordinary members of the public when you look at the enormous affluence in the private schools, especially if you look around London, around Camden or around Putney, extremely rich schools. Uh, they're not all charities, as Julie says, only half of them are charities. But to call something like that a charity, uh, uh, giving money to an institution like that for the rich just seems weird. Um, so uh, I don't think there's a, a contest about, you know, at the moment, education is a charitable activity. The question is, how would you reform that? It's not given that education would always be uh, legally a charitable activity and um, my, my view is that these bursaries that Julie talks about and I think the evidence backs me up is that they're just simply not large enough and not extensive enough to be making any difference that um, uh, you know despite the best will of, 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 of some head teachers particularly among secondary schools um, I mean the attendance at the schools, the social composition at the schools remains extremely socially exclusive. And that's what, when I've been studying the data on this for 
for years and years and years. And that's what the data shows. That, okay, some, sometimes the bursaries have increased. They've got a little bit more focused on low-income uh, households than they were in the past, but they're simply not large enough. And particularly for prep schools, where donations are much more difficult to come by, the prep schools, I should explain, are the uh, primary stage private schools or independent schools in, 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 in Britain. Um, they don't have much uh, in the way of alumni who are going to make big donations to them to enable bursaries. So in practice, it's the, the extent to which bursaries are and could be extended to make the schools more open to a more general public is, is seriously limited. And basically, it's a socially exclusive institution, independence education. And I should say that the fees in Britain is as high as anywhere in the world. So thank you. Um, so Julie, on, on those points, and feel free to throw in additional points if you want, uh, on the, the morality of it. Uh, yes, legally, perhaps, yes. But uh, many people might not view uh, some of these schools as, as charity. Uh, and many people would, would view uh, some of these schools as very far from it, you know, very uh, elite, uh, affluent. And indeed, there is a lot of conversations within schools about uh, bringing in diversity, rolling out scholarships, hardship funds, and so forth. But again, is that enough? And so on those two points that Francis raised, if you want to give us your view on those, and then again, feel free to throw in additional views that you might have on other things as well. Yes, yeah, so, so I really value the chance to come back on, yes, A, the morality, then um, the nature of a typical independent school, and then the bursaries point where there, there is some agreement too. So on, on the morality of um, charity for the rich, you might say, I think that needs to be offset against um, the morality of the rich receiving a free state subsidised education instead of paying for their own, um, which in turn then subsidises the state. So the hundreds and thousands of, of pupils in our sector who would qualify for a free, a free state place at five to six thousand pounds per year plus on costs, um, they're saving the um, the government, they're saving the treasury over three and a half billion a year through their existence. Um, and I don't think we should assume that all wealthy people are in, in some way immoral for sort of paying for doing the best they can for their children and take, making those choices if they can in other ways, um, as well as through education, coaching, opportunities for their children. Um, so I, I would like to give the example of one of the, the big wealthy London schools Francis um, mentioned. So Latimer Upper um, in West London, um, there's a school, it is a wealthy big school, it does have um, a strong sort of wealthy cohort of parents. They're at the moment raising 44 million for a, um, a fund, an endowment fund, so that they can ensure that in the sixth form, half the pupils are on full bursaries and across the school, it's at least a quarter of the pupils because they want to ensure that broader diversity. Um, and I absolutely agree. It's in no school's interests to serve just one segment of society. It's much better for all children in all schools to be able to mix with all kinds of children and, and to have that experience. But on what's a typical school, Latimer is not a typical school um, because there, there are under 100 independent schools across our membership have more than a thousand pupils. So the, the majority of the, the schools we're talking about here are not the big schools. You may have may be able to name one or two independent schools in England. They are not typical. They're like the big multinational companies of our sector. The typical school is a few hundred pupils. It's probably primary phase. It's in the countryside. It's already at the moment struggling with pensions, employer contributions to pensions costs, it's struggling with utilities costs rising, inflation rising. Um, and that's much more like the school I ran, um, the prep school in Sussex that I ran, where we had tiny surpluses, if we were lucky, each year, we were never guaranteed a surplus, a few pupils moving could make the difference um, on our balance sheet. So it, it's fairer to remember that most charitable schools are not large, 
They're not well endowed. Um, the average is just a few hundred pupils. They're not wealthy. They don't have large endowments. And, and this is pertinent to what they can afford to provide in outreach and bursary assistance. But those schools do serve their local communities and they do undertake public benefit work according to their capacity and capability. And that's important. So there are some schools who have specialisms in music or dance or drama or sport or special needs provision. And that will define how they can best provide wider public benefit. And the parents in those schools, yes, some of them are wealthy. Um, but when I was a prep school head, I, I lost count of the number of families who came to see me about paying the fees and said, we're not your usual parents, Mrs. Robinson. And, and it felt like a large proportion of them were telling me they were struggling to pay the fees even back then. Um, often it's um, dual income families where one of the parents' salaries pays for the education. They are investing in their child. They're ambitious. They're aspirational for their child. They, they um, value education and they are willing to pay. So, yes, there are wealthy parents in the sector who, who find it easy to pay. There are plenty of families who are relying on broader support in order to pay the fees. And that's why the amount of means tested assistance that independent schools are offering has been going up. Um, it's been going up and up over time. We know um, there's, a, there's a small number of full 100% or 110% bursaries. But again, from my own experience, I had a, a proportion of my annual um, fee that I was able to provide as bursary assistance. And I would seek to spread that as across as many individual pupils as possible. So it might be one child had a full 100% bursary to give them that opportunity, or two children had half a bursary. Now, given that the, the typical fee is more is around £15,000 per year at the moment, a bursary worth 50% of that fee does enable more families to afford the sector. And, and that's what we're trying to do, to enable more families to bring their children into our sector. Um, not, not just in, in bursary support, but in broader uh, outreach, some people call it partnership work. There is a, a commitment to developing what schools can offer um, so the current school year, uh, we ran our census in January and there uh, we found that ISC schools have provided £480 million worth of means tested fees assistance. So that means they look at the income of the family, family's means, and, and they're based on that, there's a sliding scale of provision. And that has benefited this year at least 40,000 pupils. On the, um, I mean, there's various points there, and and let's go to you, Francis. But let me ask you: uh, out of all of those, uh, one of the things that is most pronounced there, I guess, is the the economic argument, saying you know the private schools are putting in more into the system than they're taking out. Um, give us your view overall, um, but if you could address that specific point to start with, that'd be great. I will. I will. Well, in my view, education is a public good and and should be available to everybody in the same way as other public goods are, like free air and fresh air and so on. And uh, so that the government should pay for the education of everybody, including the rich. And the rich should part, you know, that, that's, you know, we, we should have a system in which everyone participates and uh, is not segmented into classes within the schools, into social classes within the schools. And that's, that's not just my view, I think that's a view of, probably the majority of people in this country. Um, and um, so I think the issue of you know, how much subsidy is paid from here to there is rather secondary to that big issue. Basically, public education is a public good. The health of a society in the long run depends on that. So that's my general response. Uh, I don't on, on going back on the morality question, Julie, and I think we're in agreement here. Neither of us are at all making a moral judgment about parent, parents' choices. Okay, uh, it's the moral judgment about the system itself. 
and I would be the last person to say to someone who, who for whatever personal reason or their personal circumstances, they've chosen to go for a private education for one stage. I don't, you know, given the, the current circumstances we're in, that's not the issue for my mind, nor do I think there would be a reform down that route, somehow making people feeling guilty about uh, their, the choices they make for their children. It's a, it's a question of systemic morality that's, that's at the back of my mind. Now, going back to the bursaries question, which, which uh, Julie talked about then, uh, and, and indeed, those experiences that she, she talked about for herself are, are pretty common, I think, amongst other head teachers that I speak to. But the limits are there. Uh, you can't really expand bursaries very much, especially in the, in the, in the primary stage schools. Uh, even though the sum of money has been going up, 400 and something or other million, you just said, as a proportion of the fees, which have been going up as fast as, or if not faster than, the rate of inflation for 20 years now. As a proportion of fees, bursaries haven't been going up. So the extent to which it's making a serious change in the social composition of schools is either zero or very, very limited indeed, perhaps more at some of the, the, the sixth forms. But those are the stats that come out of the um, that come out of looking at national surveys and so on. Um, we are sometimes limited in the amount of statistical information we have. It's a fairly opaque sector, the private sector, but just, just to study them from a dispassionate point of view, those are the facts that we've come up with. Um, as for the public benefit which the schools provide, and, and I agree, yes, the schools do provide some public benefits in addition to the bursaries. Sometimes they have partnerships with local state schools, Sometimes they even sponsor local state schools. Uh, that's, that's considerably rarer. Um, the point is that most of them seem fairly superficial, letting, letting, the, letting the, uh, the local uh, state school use the swimming pool, use the, use the athletic track or whatever. Most of them seem to be like that. We have no evidence, no way of judging the actual amount of resource that's transferred between the private schools and the state schools to see whether that's commensurate with anything like anything like a, 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 a charitable the benefits of charitable status. We don't. It's 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 impossible for an, a dispassionate observer to tell that, um, and. Uh, in any case, it doesn't seem to be. The key thing, are these opening up these schools to a broader section of the British public? And the answer is no. If you, if you look at the proportion, look at the people attending those private schools, some of them are skimping and saving, I would agree. But if you say that, if you, if you tell me that the people that say middle incomes are just the ones who value education more and they're, they're putting themselves out even more, well... The evidence for that is just not there because, I mean, I look at the people who go to private schools and they're spending more on their other things as well. They're just wealthier. They're just simply wealthier. And that's whether it's themselves or their families, they're able to go to the private schools because they're wealthier. And so they're buying themselves a privileged education. But that seems to me the facts of the matter. I mean, it's, you know, they, they come out of the national statistics when you look at, look at all the data sets and so on. So it's not a question of individual morality, but it's a question of the systemic inequality that which, that which we have in Britain. And on that point, I see, or on those points, I see Julie nodding your head, raising your hand. Uh, so I know you have a few things to say. Uh, before you do, I also want to point one, put one thing out there for both of you with regards to um, moving aside from the morality and so forth, but looking at it purely from economics and not so much about the, the value being added to the system, but... In the case of an industry that has uh, private uh, actors and charitable status actors, um, just the merit or, or, or the, how desirable is it to have charitable actors in a, in a sector that could be very well catered by the private sector uh, exclusively? Um, yeah, just on the point of the kinds of parents who send their children to independent schools, uh, 
I, I visit lots of schools through my work. I, I ran some. I was educated in the state system, so I have you know some, something to compare it with. And I'm a governor in a state school. And I do go into the schools and, and I do experience families who have chosen an independent school at, at some cost to themselves in order to put their child in, say, a smaller class. You know, their child wasn't thriving in the, the big local school for whatever reason. And they're exerting their parental choice to, to select a school that suits their child better. Um, so I think there are, there are more reasons than sort of privilege, if that means social well, Privilege is necessary, Julie, for doing that. And then some people who are privileged choose to do that and some don't. But most people don't have the choice that you're talking about because they don't have the wealth. But I think if, if a system seeks to take away the ability for parents to choose to spend their money how they wish, including on their children, whether that's um, fees for nursery school, other school, coaching, clubs, visits to, to museums, you know, I, I think you need that freedom. But I did want to come back to um, the public benefit point. It's a, it's a really, really good point. So we know that not all independent schools are run by charities. Those who are run by charities are regulated by the Charity Commission. They must send in an annual report of their public benefit. Now, they're regulated in the same way as all other charities. So the trustees decide how that public benefit is provided um, from within, from within the management of the school. And as I said, there is such a wide, wide variety of schools. Different schools have different capabilities in terms of, of public benefit. But they do have to formally report every year. And the Independent Schools Council, we produce an annual partnerships book. We, we keep a website of examples. We've got over 7,000 examples of, of partnership working. Um, a lot of that would count, I feel, as genuine public benefit. Um, and Francis is right, it's, it's difficult to quantify, but I know there are some schools who do attempt to set out in, a, in an Excel spreadsheet the, the cost in staff hours, um, for instance, in providing teaching for a subject that a state school people wouldn't otherwise have, or you know, the, the resource, the lost income in providing free facilities or whatever they're doing. Why, do, why don't you ask them to do that in your census then, Julie? Why don't you ask them for, to, to quantify that, that amount every year? We're, we encourage schools to quantify it, but we don't, we don't own these schools. So we, we'd encourage them to demonstrate against the benefits they feel they're receiving, how much they're giving. And we know there are examples of schools providing a whole lot more than they're benefiting, putting in more than they're taking out, as Alberto said. Um, it's We're not a, an inspectorate. Um, we're not the charity commission. Um, but certainly we do encourage it. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to have clear data on that. Um, but in terms of um, 80% discount on mandatory business rates relief and, and other tax um, benefits, such as what, what an independent school would do with corporation tax, for example, it's really complicated. These little schools I'm talking about don't have enormous administrative resource to work that out. If it were simpler, I think it could be something we could add into our census, but it's it's a very big and long census. We'd have to take out some other things. Um, I appreciate what that. we're tracking generally is is pupil numbers, um, proportions of overseas pupils, for example, and, and um, fees levels. Um, so at, at the moment, you're right, it's hard to quantify. I think we'd all love to be able to quantify it. Uh, in it's so central to the debate, Julie, about the value of it. So only, only, you, can, only you can do that because you're the, the, the sector body. But I don't think I've made, made my point clear enough that um, the, the value of charitable status to society, I might say, is, you know, the, the school I ran was a charity. I, I liked the idea of working for a charity. I liked the idea it wasn't profit making. I wanted to work for that kind of organisation because I knew it committed the organisation to demonstrating public benefit and to regulation by the Charity Commission. And if, if a school didn't have charitable status, there wouldn't be that check. That's true. There wouldn't be that check from the charitable Charities Commission, but I don't really believe that the 
accountability that the Charity Commission provides is more than minimal in, in practice. I don't, don't I mean, I, I, I suspect that the majority of independent schools when reporting on their public benefit go beyond what they actually need to do. And, um, you know, there's this, when you look at the, the accounts, they state all the wonderful things that they're doing. Uh, I, I've not heard in recent years of any school being uh, upbraid, upbraided for, for, by, by the Charity Commission. You're not providing enough uh, public benefit or I, I don't believe you're providing the public benefit you claim it to be. I don't think there's anything like the extent of oversight that you're, you're stating. And so that if they weren't charities, say from the removal of charitable status in a, in a new law, um, I don't think there will be much lost in terms of that. And, and also, let, let us be stated that as it stands, the law is such that there is a requirement to provide some minimal level of public benefit in some form or another, which, which the school itself decides. But it's pretty vague there. It's no, there's no statement about the actual level of minimum uh, a public benefit. Um, so, you know, at the moment, the requirement is not great. But the requirement is there, and that's why the schools comply. They write in their public accounts about the public benefit they're providing and so on and so forth. Um, if they've got a bursary, they'll state and so on and so forth. But the accountability is minimal and the requirement is low. Let me, um, let me go back to the, to the earlier point that I wanted to explore as well with both of you. And so putting aside how much public benefit there is or there isn't and so forth. You're both possibly to different degrees, but you, you both find it acceptable that you'd have private schools within our universe. You, you, neither one of you is saying, okay, we should remove private schools from, from the conversation. The issue of whether some of these should have and benefit from, from, from charitable status is, is, is a key point. Uh, I remember doing some research a few years back into the provision of English as a, of teaching English as a second language, a sector that has both for-profit actors and also charitable status. And at that time, it was a market that was oversupplied, there was excess capacity, and you had uh, charitable status actors in the space competing with private ventures. And then somebody said, well, isn't that crowding out private business? Like, why should, why should you have in an oversupplied market? Why should you have a charitable status actors? Is there a view on, on that sort of angle? In other words, purely the economic business context and whether this merit in saying, look, charitable status, it's not an issue of morality, this or that, but it's simply why not have the whole thing as a private space? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can speak about it as someone from, from within the sector, you know, who found myself leading a, a school in, that had a charitable status because it was run by a charity. Um, for, mo for most schools, it's, it's not something that they sort of choose. So my school, my, my second headship school was a charity because the owner, there was a proprietor who, who owned the site and decided to run a school, he and his wife. This is how lots of prep schools come to be. And then when he wanted to retire, he set up um, a, a charity so that it could continue to be run on a not-for-profit profit basis because it was his dream to provide education. So, so it was his choice. And um, once you're in that scenario... Um, and the school is run by a charity, it's quite difficult then to sort of make a decision to, to just drop that. Um, it's, it becomes a given. Um, but for, for the reasons I've given, the, the sense of this is, a, this is a school committed to its public benefit, its civic duty, I think it's, it says a lot about an SME that it would operated in that way but yeah across our sector there are for profits a lot of them would call themselves not for profit um why why should it why couldn't it just be a private space i think it it could be um i, I tend to think that people have a have a sense that education because it's about our precious children and their future is is something that, that sort of carries with it some form of sort of, you know, why are we even talking about morality? It, it, there's some sort of 
ethical right to to do the best for children. So so I so I think we there's a a, a feeling that if, even if a, a school didn't have benefits in terms of sort of tax benefits for being a charity, it might still like the idea of rem- remaining in that status. I don't know that I've expressed that at all well. well I, I, I it's a chance to think about the system. I would I would I would agree on that point that that you know if you have private schools. Uh, 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 but they're not charities, they're still delivering education for the society, in this case Britain, and they need to, there needs to be oversight and regulation of those schools. And, uh, uh, but I, I think the question of why do some schools choose to have charitable status and why some schools don't, I suspect might be to do with the paraphernalia of having to register with the Charities Commission and report on public benefit every year or something like that, and the costs involved in that. Uh, it's, it's not clear to me why that, why that happens. Um, listen, to, listen I, I've, I'm a co-finder of uh, a, 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 a new think tank called the Private Education Policy Forum. And uh, what we're interested in is some kind of reform of the system which would open up the schools so that just be, that's the key thing to opening up the schools so that it's no longer socially exclusive so whether it was done through this route or that route is is less material than the actual objective which is to make those schools uh, many of which are good schools uh, uh, you know more open so that they're not no longer socially exclusive and and so that's the, the charitable status thing, to my mind, is is more symbolic than anything else. I mean, it's just one level. It's just absurd to think um, that Eton is a charity. I know it does charitable works and has lots of bursaries. But to think that if you give money to Eton, it should be the same as giving money to uh, a food bank or something like that, legally stated. It's just there's, there's a certain absurdity there. And the abolishing of charitable status has a has a big symbolic value, I think. But but and there's a big back on the economic side, coming back to it, and I think this is what you wanted to 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 us to come back to, Alberto. I don't think it would be particularly revolutionary change uh, if charitable status were successfully abolished, say, in the next five years. I don't believe it would it suddenly change. If that was all that happened, that would change the the look of the British schooling system uh, to someone in the outside world. There would be fewer independent schools. There would be fewer private schools, uh, but not that many fewer. Uh, best estimates we have, and these are actual estimates from, from economists at the Institute of Fiscal Studies, would suggest that uh, the numbers in private schools would reduce by, let's say, 30,000 pupils. Well, that's not very many compared to um, half a million who are actually in private schools. So, I mean, I know head teachers, and you might want to disagree with me, will say that it's a lot more. And the Scottish private school heads screamed when they lost their small business rate subsidies. But the evidence this doesn't back that up. I mean, they, they'll say, oh, well, my parents tell me they'll go elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. But we haven't seen it, and we have to use the best statistics that's available, I'm afraid. Julie, I can see you're eager to jump Itching in. Itching to come in. Yeah, so, so yes, Eton is a charitable foundation. It's treated in the same way as other charities. You know, a charity like, say, Oxfam runs um, a commercial arm. That seems perfectly acceptable to the public. Please visit Eton, Francis, and see all the amazing things they're doing. It's such a long list of, of public public benefit activities. I have visited Eton. Good. Well, talk, talk to them. Talk to my them. mind. Good. Um, but, you know, the, the, the effect of charity reform would not open up schools because it would damage those more accessible schools. You know, I was talking about the smaller ones who are genuinely demonstrably struggling at the moment with costs so the damage would be be done to those smaller more accessible schools reducing demand overall and making the system 
increasingly elitist because the bigger, more wealthy schools would survive and the smaller, more accessible schools would not. And, and that's sort of the opposite of what we want to achieve socially in terms of, of opening up um, opportunity and, and increasing the good that our sector can do. So what, what would open up schools and what would help independent schools to afford more bursarial assistance would be some kind of joint funding, some kind of voucher system where perhaps some of the um, local authority funding for children could pass through those children into places in independent schools. And that's the kind of policy that would help the system, you know, increasing taxes on, in particular, the small, more typical independent schools who would then suffer isn't going to revolutionise the system, but what would open up more places for more children of all backgrounds would be some support with funding of those bursaries. And we do see that in something called Royal Springboard Foundation, where local authorities wish to place into usually boarding provision, but we're, we're trying to, to broaden it to day places as well, um, children on the edge of care or children who are fostered to give them places in independent schools. Those independent schools have to provide not only the place, but the pastoral care and Springboard is the broker of matching the child with the right school. The independent school provides a third or more of that cost and the local authority provides some more and then other sponsors provide more so it's sort of crowd-funded places in independent schools and that is quite a revolutionary policy so i i get the not the feeling but i i, I hear both of you saying you're both in agreement in terms of wishing to open up the system wishing to make it more accessible more diverse uh, so uh, and, and Francis, you, you mentioned the issue of whether charitable status, yes or no, more symbolic, uh, but the actual objective, the thrust of where you want to get to is that opening up. And and I think both of you are nodding qu quite yeah. robustly yes. in agreement. Um, Francis, what about some of the issues uh, or suggestions that Julie's bringing up in terms of alternatives to this? Yeah, uh, I, I'll come to that in just literally, literally, literally very short time. Uh, but on 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 on, make, on whether the 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 removing charitable status just makes schools more elite, uh, you know, more exclusive. You're actually right that they would. There's a kind of a balance. There will be slightly smaller private sector. This is the best estimate we have. Slightly smaller private sector, which is good in terms of getting an overall balance in the system. But the remaining schools will be slightly more uh, exclusive in terms of price. And so there's a kind of a balance there. And there are other arguments for and against removing charitable status. So that's on the economics of it, if you see what I mean. But now coming to the opening up, I'm, I'm all for opening up and I'm all for spending state, state funding to do so. But there has to be under the state's control or the, the pub, public control, social control, whether it's through local authorities or some other body. And so what would be entirely wrong would be to... Uh, deliver fees to deliver money to subsidize the fees of private school students and then they're used just as bursaries and uh, uh, and made very very selective selecting all the brightest from the local schools and so on they would have to be selected on a basis of means testing only and not on the basis of academic selection so if it's used to expand academic selection and that's a bad thing. So in my view, what's the best idea would be to open up the schools through uh, uh, the state paying for, let's say, up to 30% of the uh, of the intake of schools, not, not all at once, suddenly, obviously, but, you know, building up through the first year intake through. And then the, that will be part of the government's uh, education budget. But then... We'd have those, those would be private schools, but within them, there would be pupils whose, I mean, the, the admission to those schools would be part of the state system. So that's a really, really crucial point because if it's just paid as a large sum of money to the private schools, then essentially it appears to be a subsidy to the private sector and just, just making the rich better off again. It has to be seen as under the state's control or under social control, 
And that's the way to open it up, to, to partially integrate the schools and get the best of both worlds in that way. It's not easy uh, and require, will require a lot of work at local levels to bring this about. But in my view, that's the way to bring about long-term change. Yes, yeah, so, so it's current government policy not to support children in independent schools, even if they are on full bursaries. So these might be children who face disadvantage and they've been given a place in an independent school. They don't benefit from any of the state school funding that goes um, towards, say, healthcare programmes or laptop provision and, and that sort of thing. Um, but there is a precedent in that some of the specialist provision in our sector, which isn't available in the, in the state sector, for instance, in music and dance and special needs schools, there are some children who are state funded through higher needs funding and go into those independent schools. So I, I agree with Francis that there's a, a possibility there. And I also agree that what's key is the admissions policy. So um, we, we're yet to, to find a policy offer, but we would absolutely love to be discussing with a government how independent schools could make available places where the state does that brokering or a charity organisation like Royal, Royal National Springboard, where um, another body does the means testing, another body selects the child. There would need to be some admissions control from the independent school because some independent schools are highly academic. They're not for everyone. But speaking for myself again, when I was a prep school head, I would have happily taken a child on that funding basis that Francis um, uh, outlines and, you know, multiple percents up to 30 percent. I don't think I'd have any issue with that as long as I was confident that my school could provide for that individual child and it was going to be a successful program so as long as that child could succeed with my school so that's a little bit of emissions control um, from the independent school I think that is the kind of policy that could find our way through this um, to a very happy conclusion for more children having more education opportunity I love this. So I think we're, we're we're getting to some alignment and common ground here as as what the future. Well, almost there is one. Well, there's one more but vital issue there, which is the amount of the funding. Whether because the funding gap between what the state spends on a child is and and what the average fee is is pretty large. The private school couldn't expect the state to pay what the private fee was. They'd have to pay. Uh, whatever the average per pupil per capita funding is, and that's what the, that's what would have to be accepted by the private schools, and that may involve some cross subsidy between within the schools, between the, the fee paying parents, as it were, and the others, and so there there will be issues there, tensions there, no doubt. But it seems to me that what you're saying is quite encouraging, Julie. That that maybe maybe this is something we should. Uh, be talking about for the future absolutely i mean the the funding gap is is cause for concern uh, i think not not least because state per capita funding has not kept up with the state schools needs for their pupils um and the in independent funding does come from the pockets of the parents um but yeah i mean we we, we had been thinking francis is aware of this we've been thinking about the possibility of of a scheme where Exactly that. The local authority per capita funding follows the child into an independent school and the independent school has to find a way of, of making up the rest. That might hold, hold back numbers because, again, some schools have more capacity than others in bursary funding. But perhaps it would attract more corporate funding and sponsorship also. So, you know, ultimately, I know that the independent sector doesn't want to be seen as some sort of separate private element um, that isn't connected with the rest of the world. We, it's important to us that we are part of the broader educational landscape, doing our bit, joining together um, and both saving and giving as much as we can towards the greater good. Great. So um, I'm really actually quite heartened. I, I love the fact that we start off from a point of being diametrically opposed on things and, and really 
optimistic that you know there is common ground there to be explored and i love seeing both of your faces nodding affirmatively when when the other was talking which i have to say i wasn't expecting uh, but it's really, really great. And hopefully it's food for thought as well for people who are listening, who are involved in education policy, uh, both here and, and uh, in the UK and elsewhere. Um, now, we are really out of time. And so I always conclude by asking my guests for a key takeaway. Um, and, and I'll do that now. But before I do that, also, I know that we live in a world that's always being described recently as being very polarized. And, and you are both an example of how maybe... It's not as polarized as we might think if we actually sit down and have a civilized conversation. And so perhaps before you give me your key takeaway, maybe uh, Julian Francis, if you were speaking to, quote unquote, the opposing camp, as it were, what is it that you want to tell them? Um, well, I'd like to get away from these sort of binary distinctions between private and state and wealthy and not um, and accept that. We're, we're all on some form of, sort of spectrum or continuum across society. There are lots of different types of schools. I mean, something we haven't touched on today is that academy schools, which are 45% of the state sector, they have exempt charitable status. So they don't pay business rates either. Um, so I'd rather this was, was not about um, finding points of difference, but as, as we found today, finding a, a, a common thread so that we can ultimately serve children and their all all children and their educational opportunities by coming together as a diverse education sector but one sector different types of schools different specialisms all bringing what we can to the table and working out how most equitably to share all those opportunities across a society which inevitably has some more well-off and less well-off um, and, and I think that is a joint aim in education um, that, you know, for, for me as a teacher, I became a teacher because I wanted to teach children. I didn't specify children whose parents earned a certain amount or not, boarding or day, just want to help children to, to sort of make the world a better place. And I think that's where we should be focusing the argument. How can we improve things from where we are now? Well, my, my takeaway is simply this, that we live in a country where we have one of the most segmented and divided education systems in the uh, in the advanced economic world, and that, that there we just have no choice. We have to find a way forward to open up our education system. Education is so basic to society, and I do urge everyone involved to continue this debate. We tried to open it up to the private education policy forum, and we need to find a way forward. I think. This is not a case of something which would be nice to have. I think this is a necessary ingredient of any fundamental reform uh, of our education system for a fair society in Britain. Well, look, thank you both so very much for, for joining me and joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. I know that we struggled with diaries for a long time, uh, but we persevered and here we are and we have a final product that I think is wonderful. So thank you both very much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for joining. As always, you've been listening to a really wonderful debate with Julie Robinson, Chief Executive Officer of the Independent Schools Council, and Francis Green, Professor of Work and Education Economics at the IOE at UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. I very much enjoyed producing today's show. It wasn't easy to get the guests on the show. Schedules were challenging, but I think the debate that ensued was really fruitful, and it was very heartening to see how there is common ground and future areas that could prove very fruitful for policy exploration. Thanks so much for joining, and I'll catch you next week.